Hey, I want to welcome you to Coastal Community Church's online sermons. And uh, before you watch this sermon, first of all, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to watch. And uh, we do want you to know that uh, this is a tool to encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ, to grow closer to Him and walk with Him. Uh, we, however, at Coastal, hold a deep belief that uh, this should not supplement your attendance at a local church. We believe deeply in a local church. And so while we uh, this sermon is a, is a supplement for you, we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church, find a local pastor. Uh, if you're in our community, uh, in the Hampton Roads area, we'd love for you to attend with us. We have three services on Sunday morning, 8.15, 9.45, and 11.15, and uh, we'd love for you to join us in one of those services. So uh, do me a favor, if you have your Bible, we're going to start right at the beginning this morning uh, with uh, Genesis chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, turn with me there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in a chair in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, do me a favor, take that one with you. Because it's the second week of our series, Coastal Because. And uh, really want to encourage you, um, if you are not in a small group, this is a great time to join one, okay? And then you can just go ahead out on the way out and get a menu of where our small groups are meeting and, and be a part. We're really trying to do this together as a church. And, and uh, what I mean by that is not only come and be a part of corporate worship, but uh, unpack this series in our small groups and, and kind of intersect the, the teaching with our lives and make it practical in the small group setting. So please, please, please join, join up and be a part of a small group. And, uh, but this is week two, Coastal Because. And so while you're getting ready, get your note t- notes out, take some notes. I want to remind you two things. Don't forget, you and your family can be a part of a vision tour of the new building. Uh, uh, we are, Lord willing, still moving towards trying to get in there by Easter, and uh, really would love for you to see the progress and, and be a part of making that happen. And so you can take a small group, a small group through. You can come with your family. Uh, but we're doing two tours today at twelve forty-five and one o'clock. If you're coming, would you let us know? Sign up at the Connect Center on the way out, and and just let us know that you're coming. If, if today doesn't work and you want to come through with your family or your small group, especially small groups at another time, just contact us at the office. We'll put you in charge with Jeff Fry, our, our project manager and we'll we'll get you a tour of the new building second thing I uh, said this last week and we still have plenty left so uh, if you want to kind of supplement your study and supplement your reading with this series uh, we've put together a packet of great articles uh, that are kind of going step by step through the sermon series with us called coastal because that is at the connect center and I would love for you uh, to supplement your reading so I'm doing this series you know I've been preaching on how things are going to change as far as location for coastal change can be unsettling, but I want to take this series and kind of unpack and say, hey, there's some things in the DNA of coastal that are not going to change. They, they move with us. They're who we are. Uh, last week, we, we, we looked at the scriptures and we said, you know what, this is the word of God. And as long as we're coastal community church, we're going to open this book and we're going to kind of say, thus saith the Lord. This is what the Lord has revealed to us about himself, about how to live life, about how to be saved from the penalty of our sin. And so that's going to be in our DNA. This morning, we want to talk a little bit. I'm going to take a high-level view, okay, of the God who is, this God that we say that we worship. And and I thought probably the best place to start is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I suspect many of you have that verse memorized, right? In the beginning, what? God did what? What did he do? He created something, the heaven and the earth. And so, you know, this is an incredibly uh, profound verse, but we really need to start at its starting point, all right? Does anybody know who this was written to? Who's the audience of Genesis 1-1? Anybody know? 
It was, it was a bunch of Hebrew slaves that had recently been delivered from Egyptian domination under the leader Moses, and as Moses is leading the people of Israel out of slavery towards the promised land, he penned what we often call the Pentateuch, okay, the first five books of the Bible, so that these recently freed slaves would know about the God that has now done all these miracles, parted the Red Sea, is leading them through the wilderness, sustaining them with daily food called manna so that he could teach them about the God who is, okay? That's important because these recently freed slaves, these Hebrews that are now walking through the desert, they had been taught probably for most of their upbringing in the homeland of Egypt that Ra, the Egyptian sun god, was the creator of the earth. In fact, the Egyptians taught them that that Ra grew old, and as he grew old, he went out and became the sun, and he is now a distant creator god of the planet Earth. But Moses is writing to clear some things up. So no, no, don't get me wrong on this. This is the creator is Elohim. He's the creator, Yahweh, creator of all that is seen of the heavens and the earth. Now, some of you in your Bibles, not all Bibles do it anymore, but when I was a kid, it was pretty common that the very first few verses of the book of Genesis had indentations. I don't know if your Bible has that, right? If you turn over to the Psalms, many of, most of the Psalms have indentations, and the reason is, is they're songs or poems that were sung by the congregation. And, and again, Genesis 1, it's important. Most scholars believe that Genesis 1 was actually a poem or a song, and that's important, like when you're teaching people things, and you parents, you know this, right? I mean, how do we learn the alphabet? How do we learn the alphabet? Through what? Song, right? How many of you, when someone, when you, when you got to find something in a dictionary, you got to find a word that begins with K, you start singing the song in your head, right? Songs are powerful. We remember things that way. I remember when I was in seminary and I took Hebrew. I don't remember anything from Hebrew except the Hebrew alphabet. You want to know why? The professor taught it to us, and guess what? song, right? And so I can sing the Hebrew alphabet to this day. We do that all the time. And so Moses was through a poem or through a song trying to teach the, the Jewish people, the Jewish nation, these Hebrew free, recently freed Hebrew slaves, some things, okay, about God as creator. And so we have to be careful when we look at Genesis 1. A lot of times it's attacked or people look at it like it's a science book. That's not its intended purpose, now, science and, and God's word are not in conflict. We talked about that last week. Why do we know they're not in conflict? Because in, in, J, in John chapter 17, Jesus affirmed, affirmed something about the word of God. Remember? He said the word of God is what? Anybody remember? True. Okay, let's do this again. The word is true. Okay, here we go. The word of God is what? True. Right? Let's do it one more time. We're still not awake. The word of God is what? True, right? And so science, when done rightly, should not be in conflict with the word of God. All right. And so what bends a knee to the word of God should be science. And, and, you know, I, I'm going to get into that in just a minute, but Genesis one, one is not intended to be a science book. It's a, it's a poem. It's a, it's a hymn, if you will, that God uses. Okay. For us to, to learn about the God who is. So let's start there this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to see something very important this morning. I'm going I'm to go through kind of three high-level views of God is this morning and draw it to a conclusion that's very practical. God is creator. The God of the Bible has created all that you see. 
God of the Bible has created you. The existence of God in the scriptures is assumed. It's assumed. There's nowhere that the Bible sets out to defend the existence of God. In fact, this idea that we live for eternity, right? Like you kind of know that in your soul, don't you? No one's had to prove that to you. Even if you're here this morning and you're investigating claims for Christ, you're not yet a Christian, or you remember before you're Christian. Like it's kind of assumed that we kind of live for eternity. Where do we get that idea from? Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says, God made everything beautiful for its own time. He planted eternity where? In the human heart. You see that? I mean, Fallout Boy has made a hit song off of this, right? Some of you are like, I don't know who that is. You bet you might even know the lyric, right? You will remember me for what? Nobody, a couple of you whispered, like, I'm in church, am I allowed to say? Yeah, you'll remember me for centuries, right? And Fallout Boys made a whole hit song of this idea that, man, I am created to be remembered forever. Where do you get that idea? You got it from the Word of God, really. God has set eternity in our hearts. And Romans 1, does it, def- it, it reminds us that to look at creation and not believe or not understand that there, create, that there is a creator is to suppress the truth. And because of our rebellion against God, that's our natural inclination is to be truth suppressors. We'd rather not acknowledge the truth. The existence of God is, is not defended and he's creator. And Genesis 1 teaches us that our God, not only is he the creator, but he created out of nothing. Last week, I, I used the Latin word ex nihilo, okay? That's a very, for those of you in college or heading to college, that's a very important idea, is this idea of where in the world did matter come from? Genesis 1 reminds us that God created out of nothing. Now, maybe some of you are go, sitting here this morning and like, well, preacher, I finally got you. I've got you pinned down logically because your starting point is wrong because you are jumping out in faith that God created out of nothing. Matter just came into existence. Now, if you were to corner any honest atheistic scientist, he or she will tell you the same thing in regards to theories on how life began. In fact... Uh, there's been a mathematician who's not a Christian to my knowledge that has given us the probability of a single cell forming by evolution through limitless time and particles and events, and they've calculated the odds of this happening. The, The mathematician, his name is Charles Eugene Guy, he said the odds of a single cell, all, all, everything that needs to be right, oxygen levels and air and gelatinous muck and everything for a single cell to spontaneously form over unlimited time, the chances are 10 to the 160th power. All right? If I gave you a visual this morning, I'd I'd put a 10 up with 160 zeros behind it. You may say, well, given enough time, I guess that's statistically possible. It's also statistically absurd. You can't even even calculate it. Some scientists have tried to give us an illustration to help us understand the the difficulty of those odds coming together. One, One scientist said that it would be like somebody winning thousands upon thousands of lotteries in a row. You imagine? I mean, can you imagine? What the stati- 
I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, right? But a few weeks ago, Powerball, right? I always wonder, by the way, if you bought a ticket, and I'm not here to condemn you on that, but here's what I wonder. I always wonder why people play the Powerball when it's in the hundreds and hundreds of millions or even a billion, but why they don't play when it's just like a million. Like, I don't need a million. I ain't buying a ticket for that, but at a billion, it now becomes worth my risk, right? And so, it just I don't know what you're thinking on that, but, um, but you know, uh, if somebody won that Powerball twice in a row, what would we do? There'd be a formal investigation, right? That's statistically impossible. It's hard enough to win it, win it once, let alone twice in a row. The odds of spontaneous genera- generation of a single-cell organism, not even a multi-cell organism like you are, okay, statistically absurd. Another, another scientist put it this way. He said it'd be like going to your local junkyard, setting off a large explosion in the, in the middle of your junkyard, and, and out pops from that explosion a fully functioning F-22 Raptor. Okay, that, that, that's the statistical odds of that. George Wald, who is a Nobel Prize winner, Harvard professor, and staunch believer in evolution, said this. One has only to contemplate the magnitude of this task to concede that spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Yet, here we are. As a result, I believe in spontaneous generation. Sounds a lot like what? Faith. Sounds a lot like faith, doesn't it? Sounds, thank you. It sounds a lot like faith. I don't think it's reasonable to look at the world around us and think of anything less than intelligent design. But there's a creator. And Moses is teaching his people that there's a creator, we were, and this God that we're about to learn about, he, as he tells his generation, this God that we worship, he created out of nothing. And I love science. Listen, I, I'm a little bit of a science nerd. You know, I love to read articles about space, and I love to read articles about subcellular level. And, and, and when I read it, I'm awed by the order of creation. And I'm awed by its size, and I'm awed by its intricacy. And I, I think as some American scientists should be on their knees worshiping the cre- God of the created order. It should awe us, not make us stumble, because we are fearfully and we are wonderfully made. And anything less than to worship the creator would be ignorant at best and foolish at worst. And so God has created all. So now let me do a little so what with Genesis 1-1, okay? God is our creator, created ex nihilo out of nothing. It means this, ladies and gentlemen, it means God is sovereign. As cre- Here's the so what. God is sovereign. Genesis 1-1 teaches us God is the creator, and therefore he has the complete right to rule. As creator... He wrote the manual. He knows best how it works. He knows the most about, he has the best understanding of sex and sexuality. He understands uh, uh, morality. He understands righteousness. He understands science. He understands moral, uh, how we should morally behave. He, He understands how we best can perform physically. He's the creator. He has the right to rule. God has the final authority. Now, that may make some of you push back a little bit, right? 
kind of this thing that goes on inside. You have kids, right? You send one kid to get another kid. You ever done that? Hey, go get your brother. They go get their brother. Hey, you're not the boss of me, right? We do the same thing. We hear that God has final authority, and man, our nature is, he's not the boss of me. I'm going to do what I want. The scriptures tell us, man, we do this because we're in rebellion to our creator, naturally speaking. Is God loving? Yeah, he's loving. And is God caring? He's caring. We're going to get to this in a minute. But he is sovereign. And the truth is, most of us, call, we push back inside of us, and it comes from our fallen nature that demands that we have the right to rule our lives. And we're not going to let someone else tell us what to do. In fact, some of you, most of us, I would suspect in this room, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you would say, yes, it is exactly this idea that God is sovereign. I pushed back against it. I didn't want him to rule my life that ultimately left me in a mess. And when my mess got big enough, I realized, man, there's got to be something going on better or bigger or more important than this. I, you know, I feel like I'm stripped of my dignity. I'm stripped of my purpose. And in that moment, I said, maybe there's a savior out there. Maybe there's someone that can bail me out because I've been ruling my life long enough and actually it's not working out quite the way I'd hoped. There's got to be some answers. Our God is the creator. And the so what of that is he is sovereign. He has the right to rule. Second thing I want, to see, I want you to see this morning is we're going to, at Coastal, we're always going to understand this God who is. Second thing about this God who is, high level view of God who is, our God is holy. Our God is holy. Genesis, uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1 and 2, as Moses is writing the Pentateuch and he's describing Yahweh God to uh, the, these recently freed Hebrew slaves. He says, the Lord also said to Moses, give the following instruction to the co- entire community of Israel. You must be, what? What's it say? You must be holy. Why? Because I, the Lord, your God, am what? Holy. This is a theme throughout scripture. It's an incredibly important theme to get. God is holy. It means he's separate. His holiness means his separateness. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is is in Isaiah, where Isaiah catches a glimpse of the glory of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, it says, "In In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He was sitting lofty on a throne, and the train of his robe. By the way, not even his whole presence, just the the tail end of the robe of God, the glory of God is in the temple. And attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. And with two wings, they covered their faces, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew, and they were calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Sometimes, you know, we, we try to redefine things. We have, we've, you know, we, in fact, in your, in your bulletin, you know, this morning we have a, a nice definition of the God who is taken from the London Baptist Confession. Sometimes you, you don't have to redefine things, but, but the God who is, he's not like us. I mean, be, be very cautious. There's a sense in the scriptures of being cautious in the presence of God. He's creator, he's, he's separate in ability, he's separate in morality, he's separate in longevity. He is without sin, and sin is consumed in his presence. 
Those throughout Scripture who, who, by the way, I'm always cautious in modern day when I hear that someone says, I have seen God. I mean, I, 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 when I hear that, I immediately recoil. And I want to listen to what they say next. And if it's this warm, mushy, soft, safe place, I wonder. And the reason I wonder is every time a person in Scripture sees even a tip of the glory of God, it's not a warm, safe, soft, comfortable place. It's a terrifying place. You read through Scripture, when people see the glory of God, man, they fall down. Isaiah falls down in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, when he sees the glory of God, just a glimpse. He says, then I said, man, it's all over, and I am doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips. I live among a people with filthy lips, yet I have seen the King, the Lord of heaven's armies. Terrifying. If you read through the book of Revelation, where people get glimpses not even of God, but of angelic beings. They keep falling down in fear. You read it over and over and over in Revelation. And the angels say, no, 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 not me. I'm just an angel. Not me. I'm just an angel. It's a terrifying thing to see the heavenly bodies. <laughs> and so I get, I get nervous in our culture, but, but our God is holy, man. He's separate. And God, according to Leviticus 19, he requires that we live out his character. Live out the name of God. He says, you must be holy. You must be holy. And by the way, this is not like some mere suggestion from our creator. If you feel like it, if you're up to it. In fact, the next few verses that I don't, don't have listed out of Leviticus 19, he takes the commands... They're very much like the Ten Commandments, and I'll abbreviate this for you, but he says, this is kind of what my holy character looks like, nation of Israel. You need to respect and honor your parents. And you need to trust in the Lord only, and you need to, when you gather for corporate worship, you need to come with an appropriate heart for worship, and you need to be generous with both your money and your stuff, and you shouldn't be stealing. That includes music and school answers or from the government. And you shouldn't be lying, and that means slandering someone else's name. And you shouldn't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And that's more than just swearing, okay? I think that also means when you run around with the name Christian upon you, but your character doesn't reflect the holiness of God. You shouldn't be gossiping. Where You're going to tell that person what you really think, only you're going to tell them to someone else. You need to learn to let go of the anger in your heart and let God take care of justice. And you don't go out and get revenge and you respect the elderly and you're honest when you're doing business. These are the characteristics of our holy God lived out very practically here on earth. And according to the scriptures, if you've ever messed up even one, guess what that makes you? Unholy. Don't deserve to be in the presence of God. It's the God who is. In a coastal way, we're going to cling to this truth. And I'm going to make a very radical statement, okay? I want all eyes on me for one minute, okay? Because maybe this got a little long and tedious to you. You will never understand your need for a Savior and your need for salvation until you understand the God who is 
until you understand your life in the pecking order of things, until you understand that God is creator and you're the created. You're never going to understand your need for a savior until you understand where I stand in the order of things. And you're never going to understand that the creator God has the absolute right to rule. You're not going to understand your need for a savior until you understand who God is. And you're never going to understand that God is holy until you, you're not going to understand your need for a savior until you understand that God is holy and you're not. Until you understand that there is an extreme difference between you and the God of the universe, you're not going to understand your need for a savior. And it's not until you meditate. And by the way, the word meditate is a big church word. It just means to think about, contemplate, understand. Until you understand these things, these things you're not going to understand your need for salvation. And what you're going to do, and because I'll tell you, I'm passionate about this. And the reason we're not going to lose this is a coastless idea is because, is because of this. Because we live in a culture where these things are not being contemplated and meditated upon, even in our churches. And so what we've done with the gospel is now the gospel is being taught as a, as a, hey, you just need to accept Jesus into your heart. As opposed to what Jesus taught us is you need to repent and believe. See the difference? Accepting Jesus in your heart doesn't deal with sin. It doesn't deal with rebellion. Repentance means, hey, I'm a sinner and I acknowledge my need for a savior. And you'll go through life with a kind of, I'm okay, you're okay, and Jesus is just kind of a little tack on and kind of, you know, eternity insurance kind of thing instead of a savior who demands your worship and your surrender. And he's certainly not going to become the person you that, need, that you need to save you. And when you contemplate holiness, you'll realize, man, I'm not holy. It's not, it's not impossible for me to walk in holiness apart from my Savior and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the only hope for all of us to stand in the presence of God. Leads me to close with this, the God who is. Our God is a God of love. This God, this creator God, holy God, he loves you. But I want to be very clear here this morning. God's love is shown in Jesus Christ. And this is very important. Because you'll hear this all the time, right? You'll even hear this on the news. God is what? People say, God is love. He's a loving heavenly father, which of course is true, but it's not true if you don't add on this last phrase. He's shown us his love in Jesus Christ. You see, going all the way back to Genesis, the sun god, Ra, he's a disinterested creator, but not the God of Israel. Moses is leading us on this long redemptive history where God continues to reveal himself over the generations. And what we learn is our God is a triune God. In the second person of the Trinity, God wrapped himself in flesh in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he entered in. That's why at Christmas time we talk about Emmanuel, which means what, church? God's with us. Isn't that incredible? 
And so God's love is shown to us in Christ. Let me show you a couple verses so you get this, right? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Does it end there? No. How did he love the world? He loved the world so much that he gave, what did he give, church? His one and only son. He loves us in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 39, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. Does it end there? How do you reveal the love of God? Revealed to us in Christ Jesus, our what? Our Lord. Galatians 3.26. This is where people get confused. For you are all children of what? Does it end there? Uh-oh. You wouldn't know that in our culture. Well, we're all children of God. Now, in a sense, we're all created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. But, but church, to be clear, the New Testament is very clear. We're not all children of God unless we are found in Christ. But Romans teaches us that apart from Christ, we are children of wrath. See, that just doesn't play on CNN, right? For you're all children of God through, what's it say? Faith in what? Christ Jesus. There's a linking mechanism, if you will, to the love of God. It's the person of Jesus Christ. It is our pursuit of holiness that should show us our need for a Savior. And apart from Jesus Christ, you cannot earn God's favor. Not only can you not earn God's favor, but you need His help for your sin so that you can be bought back. The church word is redeemed. And there are very, two very important aspects of Jesus' time here on earth, okay? I don't, I, think I, I don't think I have this in your notes, okay? But you should write this down. His passive obedience. The passive obedience of Jesus. Here's what that means. It means he accepted the will of God the Father, and he died for your sin. And he paid with his blood the debt owed for your lack of holiness. It's his passive obedience. And then there's the, and here's the second word I want you to write down. You can look these up later. The active obedience of Christ. So there's his passive obedience that he submitted to the will of the Father, and he died to pay a payment he didn't know. And then there's the active obedience of Christ, that Christ was holy. He kept the law. He kept the rules. He kept the character of God perfectly so that when you accept him into your life, you repent of your sin and you believe, repent and believe, his rule keeping, if you will, his holiness becomes your holiness. It is credited to your spiritual bank account by grace through faith. It's the act of obedience of Christ. And so God appeased his own character, his own holiness by sending his son Jesus on your behalf. There's nothing greater that God could have done for you to show you his love. When you repent of your sin and you believe in Christ Jesus, that is how you accept God's love. To reject Jesus Christ is to reject the love of God. To repent and believe in Jesus Christ is to accept the love of God. To reject Jesus is to reject the love of God. 
fear is there some of you here this morning that are rejecting the love of God. And how desperately as I was preparing this this morning and as we were singing the last song, Lord of Lords, I was like, God, if there's anybody in this room this morning that doesn't know the love of God through Christ, maybe today's the day. Man, God loves you. So much, he couldn't do anything greater than give you his son. And see, we run around in this culture where everybody spouts off at the mouth, God is love, God is love, God is love, but they don't want to talk about Jesus Christ, and they get offended by Jesus Christ. If you're offended by Jesus Christ, you don't know the love of God. He is the love of God. His Passive and active obedience. He submitted to the will of Father. He bore a debt he didn't owe. And in his active obedience, he lived in righteousness, which is now credited to you by grace through faith, so that when you stand in the presence of God one time in eternity future, you will be accepted because you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. You don't stand there on your own accord. It's incredible. I want you to know that this morning. I tell this story once a year because it's so important to me. The story is actually found in Luke chapter 15 where Jesus is being criticized for hanging out with the less than religious people. So the religious people couldn't understand why Jesus would hang out with all of these people that no one else hung out with. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you a couple stories about our heavenly father so you understand the heartbeat of our heavenly father. And the third one, the third story, is the story that God used to convert my soul. That's why I'm so passionate about it. There's two boys. His father has two boys, and the youngest boy says, hey, Dad, I want, my, I want my inheritance right now. And so the father gives his inheritance to this younger boy, and the younger boy goes out and he squanders it. First, he indulges his flesh, okay? So first, he takes his dad's money. And by the way, when you ask for your inheritance early, what are you asking for? I wish you were dead. That's what you're saying, right? And so he asks for his inheritance early. He goes and squanders it. Essentially, the picture is painted of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. All right? Then the money runs out, and a recession hits, and he can't, he can't even find a job. Unemployable. So he finds the lowest of the low job. He finds a job feeding pigs, okay? And so you have to understand in Hebrew culture, like this was the lowest of the jobs. I'm going to tell you something. The further you stray from God, the more you get stripped of your dignity. Somehow we've painted the picture that, you know, if you know God, he strips you of your dignity. It's quite the opposite. You get stripped of your dignity and of your joy and of your purpose. And so this kid ends up in a pig pen, and he's feeding the pigs, and he, the Bible says he's longing to eat what the pigs are eating. That's how low he became. And he's in this lowly spot, and I love what he... Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 15, verse 17. He says, when he finally came to his what? And I remember that moment because it was like the preacher was preaching on this story and the Holy Spirit was convicting my heart. And, and I was a young kid and, and, and fortunately the nature of my rebellion only went so far as I had probably too much secular music. Okay, that's where I was like, God, this secular music has a hold of my heart, but it had a hold of my heart, right? 
And the Billy Joel song, you know, I don't care what you say, I'm going to do with what I want with my life. Remember that song? Like, that was kind of my theme song, and we kind of laugh. I laugh about that now, but that's where I was. That was a great reflection of my heart to my parents, to my church, to my God. I don't care what you say anymore. It's my, I was rebelling against Genesis 1. But man, I didn't like where I was, and I was lonely, and I had no purpose, and I was depressed, and I was in the pig pen, and guess what? By the power of the word and the power of the spirit, I came to my senses. And the next verse basically spells out this young man's repentance. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to go home, and I'm going to ask my dad. I'm going to say, Dad, I've sinned against heaven and against you. God and man takes care of repentance, right? He's heading home. God and man sinned against heaven and against you. And if you could just make me like one of your servants, because they have it better than eating pig pen pods, okay? And so in Luke, and here's the heart of the father, Luke chapter 15, verse 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with what? Love and what? Compassion. He ran to his son, he embraced him, and he kissed him. Why do I tell that story once a year, man? Because that's the story God used to change my life. And I love this picture of God, our Father, who loved us in Christ. He doesn't wait for us to get our lives together. This kid was still a stinky, mud-pitted mess. He doesn't wait for us to get our theology right, okay? God shaped my theology over time, but at that moment, I was as dumb as a brick on theology. All I knew was God loved me in Christ. God didn't wait for me to clean myself up. He just wanted me to come home. God in Christ is like a lovesick father, and he's waiting for you to come home. The creator, sovereign, holy God loved you enough to send his son to pay for your rebellion against the creator and bring you back into relationship with him. Here's my question. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? The God who is creator, sovereign, holy God loves you in Christ Jesus. Make today the day of salvation. Everybody bow your head and close your eyes. I, this may be a moment for somebody in this room. This may be a moment for you. It's maybe a moment to do business with the creator God. He created you. He loves you. He knows how it best works. And maybe this morning you're in the pig pen, and I want to encourage you, come to your senses. Repent and believe. So this morning, man, it's not a prayer that saves. It's the Holy Spirit that saves. Maybe the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, and I just want to offer you an opportunity with a prayer to be saved from the penalty of your sin that you may know life, purpose, joy, and have eternal life. I want to offer you this prayer. Pray it in your heart. Pray it in your mind.
Heavenly Father, it has become clear to me this morning that you are the creator and you are holy. And I have been living in rebellion to your sovereignty and to your holiness. And it has become clear to me this morning that you also love me in Christ. And so as best as I understand it this morning, I repent of my rebellion and my sin, and I bow a knee to the lordship of the person and work of Christ, believing that he died for me and he rose again, that I might have new life, both here on earth and eternal life when Christ comes again. As best I understand it, I trust you today. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.